calling all car dealers in Ontario. Protect your clients from hefty insurance premium surcharges coming in September while simultaneously saving on your garage policy premium. With insurance premiums skyrocketing on high-theft vehicles, your clients could save up to $12,500 over five years. Increase your profits and enhance your savings with Invisitrack Locate. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the November 24th, 2023 episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. I'm your host, Greg Layson, the digital and mobile editor at Automotive News Canada. My guest today knows the latest pattern contract signed between Unifor and the Detroit 3 automakers better than anyone else. That's because she was at the head of the bargaining table for all three sessions. She's here to tell us about those talks, the deals, what they mean for auto workers, and where the union goes next, and how the UAW talks affected bargaining in Canada. All that and much more when I speak with Unifor President Lana Payne on this episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. Lana, thanks for joining me on the podcast this week. Thanks for having me, Greg. It's great to get you on. Congratulations on the three deals with the Detroit Three Automakers. I have to ask, how are you feeling now that they are wrapped up? Oh my gosh, it's been a marathon, that's for sure. Uh, we we started bargaining way back in August, as you know, because you follow this closely. Uh I would say I'm I'm very uh, proud of the work that our bargaining teams did. Uh, of course, we have elected leadership from all of our plants who make up our our three master uh, bargaining committees, and uh, they were exceptional and outstanding uh, through this entire uh, period. And as we know, this is a, a really interesting, extraordinary time to be bargaining for workers, and that was definitely true of what we experienced uh, through auto bargaining this year as well. Yeah, let's expand on that a little bit. We've had labor experts tell us that perhaps uh, in no time, in recent memory anyway, has labor and the workforce uh, wielded this much power. Did you get that sense in these contract talks that this was the moment to make gains and that you might not be in this position again anytime soon? I just wonder what that was like. I would absolutely agree with that, that this was a moment that uh, we saw a window. Uh, We knew our members' expectations were extremely high, Greg. Uh, we also knew, uh, you know, the, the, the general economics uh, that we're facing in the world, whether that's a, a bit of a tighter labor market, whether it is the fact that, you know, people are dealing with a cost of living crisis, particularly here in Canada. We, we've called it an affordability crisis. And, uh, you know, interest rates have been increasing rapidly. All of these things uh, factored into uh, and spilled over uh, onto the bargaining table. And, you know, we felt uh, that this was a, a good time. If you throw in the profits uh, that that the Detroit Three were also uh, earning, uh, it gave us a moment to really look at how we could improve uh, these collective agreements across the board, uh, not just one key uh, feature uh, to try and make an improvement on. We were looking at trying to do comprehensive improvements across the entire collective agreement from pensions, wages, obviously investments, which is something that's always critical during bargaining, but also between rounds of bargaining. And then finally, for us, 
this massive transition that we're going through and transformation uh, in the industry uh, was for Austin at Uniform meant that we had to be making sure we were negotiating, you know, supports and uh, transition uh, income security uh, for our members during these uh, massive retooling periods. Uh, so yeah, we were we knew we had a big job to do, and uh, I, I was, as I say, really really proud of the work of our committees uh, through this entire period. I'm curious, you kind of touched on this just a moment ago. The demographics are different at every automaker. Each workforce is different, and particularly GM in Oshawa, where the plant was idled for a year, came back with new hires, much younger workforce. What's it like trying to keep enough members happy to approve each and every pattern? And just walk me through how you approach that hurdle of perhaps an older workforce at Ford versus the younger workforce at GM. And then Stellantis kind of falls in the middle. What's that process like for you and those at the bargaining table? How do you keep everyone happy and and get the deal passed? Absolutely. Well, we told the automakers on August 10th that this would have to be the best agreement that we'd ever negotiated with them. Uh, that was the moment we were in and and no one should take it for granted. We certainly were not uh, taking it for granted. It It is a challenge. There's no doubt about it. When you were trying to achieve, Greg, as much as we were trying to achieve, we knew we had to do something on pensions. Uh, because we hadn't seen pension improvements in, in some cases, 15 years or longer in, in these agreements. And, you know, for the most part, big corporations uh, like the automakers had really written pensions off. They just figured they never had to negotiate these again. And, and we knew that that, is not, that was not acceptable to our membership and it wasn't acceptable to our union. On the wage package, of course, we had to do well. And of course, when you look at you know, uh, the, the younger workforce, it was really about these agreements being almost transitional in the sense that we had to to use these agreements as an opportunity to build more fair, fairer and uh, more equal workplaces. And and that it speaks to what you've been saying around uh, the younger workforce, for example, at Oshawa. Uh, I mean, in 2012, the, the new hire program was negotiated for all the reasons that we know the industry was in a in a very bad place. And, uh, you know, we were trying to save plants here in Canada. And one of the ways we did that uh, was was through that new hire program. And then over time, uh, we reduced uh, what what is the progression grid uh, from what was over uh, 10 years to down to eight. And and this was a priority for us in this round of bargaining, as it was for the UAW, to, to reduce that progression grid and knowing full well that this was clearly going to help uh, the younger workers. But when we come out of this agreement three years from now, uh, these agreements will be less divisive than they than they were in the past uh, because people uh, will be treated more equally under them. But we had to get through this first in order to, to get to that period. And, uh, and for sure, it was uh, having to take into account all of all of the different uh, demands and needs. And uh, as you know, we put them under four key categories from pensions to the wage package to EV support and uh, and income support and, of course, investments and uh, all of all of the, the demographics was one thing, but it was also the situation that some of these automakers were in. Some were going to be uh, where we had plants going through major retools. And so for the Ford bargaining, which is where we set the pattern, they had to think about not just what it was required of their membership, but also setting the pattern for the next two. And, and that meant 
uh, you know, really thinking about uh, the younger membership at GM. That had to be in their in their minds as well, uh, because we knew that we'd have to do something uh, with Ford that was was going to be able to serve the test of time uh, in terms of having a pattern with the other two. And uh, that force, first Ford committee uh, did some very heavy lifting here. Let me ask you then about the other side of that age coin, if you will. What do you say to workers with 25, 30 years seniority who say their current pension isn't good enough and that's why they voted no and they accuse Unifor of not doing enough to improve it. What is your message to those who voted no? And there was a large number that voted no at Ford and not as many that voted no at Stellantis, but still enough that I would think you maybe want to say something to them. What do you say? Yeah, I've actually talked to a number of our members around the pension issue as well. I went to a number of our ratification meetings, uh, Greg, so I have had uh, you know, uh, big group conversations and one-on-one conversations with our members. And, you, you know, a, a collective agreement is never really about getting every single thing. And what I've tried to say is we need to look at the agreement in its entirety and and the level of comprehensive changes that were there, including, you know, what was done uh, with wages, which of course has a big impact on pensions as well going forward. Um, and, and that, you know, this is three years and we have time. Uh, we are able to, we were able to prove in this round of bargaining that we can negotiate pensions and we're going to continue to negotiate pensions for our members. Uh, we actually, you know, had a huge success here in finally getting uh, the D3 to recognize that we can have a DB, uh, defined benefit style pension plan again, uh, to the point where, you know, we even had the White House calling about uh, this DB style plan and and trying to figure out uh, with our research team, how did you come up with this idea and how does it work in Canada? And is this something that we can replicate uh, in the United States? So I think it's, it's incredibly important that we look at collective agreements in their entirety. And of course, I know uh, that our members, uh, particularly those closer to retirement, would have liked to have seen a lot more in pensions. And it's difficult at the best of times uh, to negotiate, uh, you know, significant improvements, although I would say the improvements here have been good, very good. But when you look at uh, trying to make up lost ground for 15 years, uh, it's, it's a very tough thing to do in the pension world. We'll be right back after this short break. Due to the alarming rise in vehicle thefts, starting September 1st, 2023, Ontario drivers will face a brand new substantial surcharge to their already high insurance premiums to many of your top-selling models, and they need your help. IA Dealer Services has partnered exclusively with KYCS Global Inc. to offer dealerships across Canada the Invisitrack Locate Vehicle Recovery Program. Invisitrack Locate is recognized in the insurance industry as a solution to auto theft loss, so much so that insurance providers will waive the premium surcharge for consumers who install an Invisitrack Locate device in their vehicle. You can help your clients by simply adding an Invisitrack Locate with their vehicle purchase. Invisitrack Locate will save your eligible clients between $500 and $2,500 on their insurance surcharge per year for the next five years. Yes, you heard that right. You can save your clients between $2,500 and $12,500 over the next five years, all while adding a new revenue stream to your dealership and providing your customers with the most effective asset location and recovery device on the market. Now is the time to act. 
Contact your IA Dealer Services consultant today and ask how Invisitrack Locate can help you and your clients save money and recover stolen vehicles before they end up gone forever. Welcome back to the podcast where I'm speaking with Unifor President Lana Payne. I'm curious, how do you expect workers at other automakers, non-unionized automakers, and other parts suppliers in Canada to react to these contracts? And how do you expect their employers to react to these new contracts? Uh, Well, I keep saying that every time we negotiate monster deals like this, it certainly becomes an organizing moment for our union, uh, whether it's in the auto sector or the grocery sector or or wherever it has been. We've had a year of of negotiating a very strong uh, collective agreements, in some cases, uh, the best agreements ever uh, in in certain sectors. And and I think it's important to, to understand that as you've seen south of the border in Canada, the non-union uh, automakers have been raising wages here based on our agreement, by the way. That has been happening at Toyota, at Honda. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's very clear because they have done this historically. At whatever we negotiate for our members, uh, it, it's, uh, this, this follows that uh, Toyota and Honda does not, they don't want to fall behind because then, you know, it makes it uh, obviously a, 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 an opportunity then for our union uh, to go in there and organize. And I think it's, it's really important uh, when, when we do get agreements like this, that we are, uh, you know, explaining what it is, the power of being able to negotiate your own uh, working conditions and wages and pensions and and you know having rank and file workers at a bargaining table across the across the table from the boss and uh, being able to do that and then bring it back to the membership uh, for them to vote it's uh, it's you know in places where I I like to say the world uh, you know is losing democracy in so many places and forms right now and and yet here we are. Uh, in the union movement, uh, what is more democratic than that? Workers negotiating their own collective agreements and voting on them, too. It's uh, it's quite a, uh, an outstanding thing. I'm glad you brought up the, the Toyota and the Hondas of the world raising their wages, because I am curious what that does or how it affects your chances as a union of organizing other automakers in Canada. Does it make it more difficult because they do follow suit almost immediately after you sign in and ratify these deals? How does Toyota and Honda raising wages affect your ability to organize more automakers? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's very clear the employer is doing this for the reason of keeping the the union out. Um, Organizing workplaces, particularly the size of Toyota and Honda, these are never easy things to do, Greg, at all. I, I would say to you, it's always, always a challenge. I mean, you're trying uh, to convince uh, large groups of workers uh, to vote in a certain way. And, and uh, you know, there are all kinds of rules around what you can do and can't do uh, under, under labor legislation. Um, but what I would say is that this is an ongoing process. We are Canada's auto union, and uh, we're doing incredible work, uh, not just for our members, but for the sector itself. Uh, we are a champion for this sector in Canada. We, you know, in the, in the days when, Everyone had given up on the auto industry. Uh, our union did not. Uh, we continued to push policymakers and politicians and governments to say, look, you need to invest in this sector. You need to, too, become a champion uh, of the manufacturing sector in Canada and the auto sector as kind of the predominant uh, force in that manufacturing sector. And I believe, uh, you know, that that 
carries a lot of weight when when workers can be part of that lobby and that struggle to make sure that we're you know, increasing the footprint in Canada, which we have been doing, by the way. And that was also critical for us in this round of bargaining to say, okay, during this EV transition, how do we protect our members? How do we protect their incomes? And it's one of the things I believe about this bargaining that has been the most, uh, you know, underestimated powerful uh, outcome. And that is, is that I, you know, other industries and sectors will look at what we did uh, to help our members and help workers uh, through what is going to be a significant transition and uh, making sure that they did not get left behind. And uh, that's that's a very important thing. And we have other sectors in Canada that will go through a similar uh, transition at some point down the road. And so this becomes almost uh, a groundbreaking um you know, principle of how we can how we can go forward in terms of making sure that we uh, protect working people. Uh, this is a question I have to ask. Uh, what are the long term effects uh, from the gains, such as cutting the grow in timeline by 50 percent, for example, uh, bringing back cost of living? All of this will have an effect on the bottom lines of the automakers. So what effect does that have on the price of new vehicles? I, I, you know, these companies are, are making a, a lot of money right now, Greg. <laughs> they, uh, I, I, and I believe that what we have negotiated are important uh, improvements for working people that, uh, you know, the, the transition that's going to occur uh, will, will not happen and won't be successful without the kind of skills and experience that we bring to the table and that our members and, and auto workers bring to the table. So they're necessary uh, to make this uh, a success. And I, I believe you would have heard uh, automakers uh, say this too. And, and they also know that people are sensitive to sticker prices. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and, and interest rates have not helped with that, by the way, and they're not going to help with it. Um, but I do believe that, you know, in this time, we have to make sure that we were returning, uh, you know, these auto jobs to be the premium jobs, uh, manufacturing jobs in North America. And and these agreements have have done that. And I uh, I'm, I'm proud of that work. And I, I think the companies will be successful going forward. There's no reason that they shouldn't be. Does your new deals with do your new deals with the Detroit three rate ultimately raise prices I, I what does you put it this way what does Unifor estimate their labor cost as a percentage of the uh, suggested uh, retail price do you have any idea um, you know it's a hard number to drill down on but I'm just wondering if Unifor has a number that it works with um, that wages are X percentage of a new vehicle price yeah, they're obviously a lot, you know, a lot less than what they would spend in in uh, in other elements of of you know whether it's engineering, whether it's uh, you know marketing. It's it all of those things come into play in terms of overall costs for for vehicles, and then of course a return to shareholders, which uh, you know is, is also part of the costs here. Uh, but but obviously, you know, the you have to expect. Uh, with the kind of profitability uh, that these companies have had and experienced, and in some cases, by the way, by making fewer vehicles, uh, and that—that's the reality of it. They were able to to charge more uh, for for vehicles coming out of the pan pandemic because of the supply chain issues that we faced, and and they were just building uh, fewer cars. And and the reality is, is that you know our members bear bear the brunt of that. They were the ones having to you know. 
uh, not getting uh, not getting the uh, a full year's work or being I mean I think our Ford uh, Oakville plant in in the years of the pandemic they they lost like 51 weeks of work during that period. It was very similar yeah. in Windsor where the minivan plant didn't run for months at a time. It seemed exactly like. months at a time and and I'm, I mean I'm sure you're familiar there would be weeks the notices were going up the local union would put up 444 would put up the notice and they'd say we're down again next week and so those things also I would say to you Greg led to some of the frustration uh, that our members were feeling going into this round of bargaining and uh, you know I think that there's a lot of money in this sector I think our members uh, deserve uh, the wages and benefits that we've been able to negotiate and I think there's plenty of money to go around here. I would be remiss if we didn't discuss this I am incredibly curious how did your counterpart in the United States, UAW President Sean Fain, and his tactics and his rhetoric affect bargaining on this side of the border? Well, I think there's, I mean, there's always going to be an impact one way or another because we were bargaining at the same time. And uh, and that was, uh, by the way, just to, to give your listeners a, an understanding of, of why we got into that moment, it was, we were, we were, crucially needed to get back to the bargaining table in three years. If you remember in 2020, we knew that a number of our plants were going to be going through a transition. Uh, For us, it meant getting to the bargaining table before that transition occurred so that we could make sure that we had the best information possible. I mean, three years ago, it was difficult to know how long these retooling uh, periods were going to last. So this put us in an important uh, position. Uh, I would also say that you know, in in many ways, uh, we had a, a similar job to do. We both had to deliver very good uh, collective agreements uh, for our membership, and that there was shared frustration uh, by auto workers for all the reasons that we've we've chatted about uh, already. I, I I would say that you know we we're very pleased that they were able uh, to get strong agreements for their membership. We don't want to see uh, you know the gap between Canadian auto workers and and. American auto workers uh, grow too much because that can obviously uh, impact on on investment decisions in the future in Canada. We all know this. We've seen it in the past. And, you know, so for sure, we had to to take into account what they were doing down there. And I think the fact that when we got that first Ford deal that set the pattern, it, it was helpful to them. Uh, It was helpful that we were able to negotiate COLA. It was helpful that, you know, we were able to get the progression grid cut in half. Like these things uh, were sure things that they were also trying to achieve there. It was helpful we were able to get, uh, you know, a a retirement benefit for our retirees. I can guarantee you uh, that these these were helpful gains uh, that Unifor achieved and that uh, would have been helpful uh, to our sisters and brothers uh, south of the border, including, of course, their huge strike and um, fight back by their own membership. Uh, I mean, our strikes were, we had two, they were short in duration, enough to get, uh, you know, what we needed to get in terms of these pattern agreements over the finish line. Uh, But in the end, uh, both unions have achieved strong collective agreements for their membership, and, uh, and that's a victory. Lana, thanks for joining me. Great stuff. I'm so glad uh, we finally got to connect. Me too, Greg. Anytime. I'd like to thank Lana for being my guest. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, have a suggestion, or simply want to comment, email me at glason at autonews.com. And remember, you can listen to all our previous podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play, or on our website, automotivenews.ca. Just click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. 
That does it for this episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. So long, everybody.